Hello and welcome back to our series, Reading and Evaluating the Demond Brothers, the set of a contest Feeneyite group. As a reminder of why we're doing this, just about every single denominational body on planet Earth right now is busy with stabbing the laity in the back. Almost all Christian institutions on Earth have decided that they are going to have a love affair with the world. They are going to wink at sins of the flesh. They are going to hold to worldly morality uberales. They're just going to do that. That is what they have done. We are living in the midst of the great apostasy. And so, your average Christian that wants to be a devout Christian has to wrestle with this fact. And this includes the Roman Catholic Church. So the Demond brothers, having operated the most holy family monastery or something out there in the East Coast, they serve as a cautionary tale. How do you not respond to this? After all, they have some similarities with the very Lutheran project. I teach people... If your church hates you, leave. I show people house church resources so they can continue receiving word and sacrament and having a church life outside of institutional bodies that hate them. I recognize the similarities, but I reject their frame of mind, which is to say, everybody's damned but us. That seems to be the argument that these set of a contest groups are making, going off into the weeds into a form of extremism that twists the Christian faith and ends up denying it, such as the doctrines of the Demond brothers, and there are versions of them for every denomination, including Lutheranism. My goodness, there are some Lutherans out there so animated by hatred, really, nothing but seething, frothing hatred, that like the DeMond brothers, you hardly ever hear them talking about the gospel and Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And as we begin to read Brother Peter DeMond's book, The Bible Proves the Teachings of the Catholic Church, we're going to find out that hatred in response to your denomination hating you makes you stupid. It makes you deeply, unsettlingly ignorant. And I don't care if you have a high IQ. I don't care if you think you are a genius. If you forget the gospel in the midst of your opposition to bad Christian groups, you're going to end up looking very foolish. Let's take a look at this first section here in the book. The Bible teaches that Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist. How does this guy, who looks like Chills, the guy from Top 15s, how does he put it? He starts off with, Protestants do not believe that the Eucharist is the actual body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Yeah, we do. At least Lutherans do. A lot of Anglicans do. I don't get this idea that all Protestants don't believe that. Catholics believe that after the consecration at Mass, the Lord Jesus Christ, true God and true man, is truly, really, and substantially contained in the Eucharist under the appearance of bread and wine. 
Council of Trent, decree on the Eucharist. The Catholic view of the Eucharist was unanimously held for the first 1500 years of Christianity. The biblical support for the Catholic teaching on the Eucharist is overwhelming and undeniable. Okay, well, as a Protestant, as a Lutheran, somebody protesting the Roman Catholic Church, much in the same way you are protesting the Roman Catholic Church, Mr. DeMond, I agree with you for the most part. I know that you said uh, Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained in the Eucharist under the appearance of bread and wine because you believe in transubstantiation. I believe in the real presence of Christ, the sacramental presence, which means he's really there, but also the bread and the wine are there. So yes, you truly do eat Christ's flesh and drink his blood in, with, and under the elements at communion. As a Protestant, this is what I believe. Why do you think that that's not what I believe? But he continues, he cites John chapter 6, in which our Lord Jesus Christ says, The bread that I will give is my flesh. Whosoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. Indeed, these are the words of our Lord Christ. God be praised for his glad tidings. Yes, the sacrament of Holy Communion is a sacrament. But Mr. DeMond says, Jesus says over and over again in the clearest terms that his flesh is food and his blood is drink. He says that unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you shall not have life in you. The Jews scoffed at the notion of eating his flesh. In response, Jesus confirms that this is exactly what he meant. Okay, I agree with you. But then he says, Non-Catholics claim that the words of Jesus in John 6 are not meant to be understood literally. They claim that Jesus was speaking only metaphorically or symbolically. No, I don't. I really don't believe that. I believe Jesus was speaking quite literally. So, where did you get this idea, Mr. DeMond? You clearly know your stuff when it comes to philosophy, and you know how to read documents because you're going over stuff like the Council of Trent. So why do you think that I, as a non-Catholic, as a Lutheran, deny Christ's presence in the Eucharist? Such an interpretation is not justified by the context of John 6. I agree with you. Furthermore, it is clearly refuted by what Jesus said to the Jews immediately after they expressed their disbelief at the idea of eating his flesh. Uh, when our Lord Christ says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Okay. The Jews did not believe that it was possible, or that Jesus could really mean that he would give them his flesh to eat. They said exactly what the Protestants are saying today. If Jesus had been speaking in purely metaphorical rather than literal terms, as the Protestants say, then here was the perfect opportunity for him to assure them that their fears were unfounded. It was the perfect moment for Jesus to explain that he didn't really mean that people would eat his flesh, but that he meant something else. Yeah, so that's why I believe as a Lutheran that Jesus Christ is truly there. Not all Protestants hold to the symbolic view of Holy Communion. Sir, you should know this. So why are you ignoring that? You could say, Baptists 
hold to a symbolic understanding of the Eucharist. You could say that Calvinists, or at least those in the true Reformed tradition, hold to a spiritual presence of Christ. You could get into why the Baptist position is untenable because of Christ's language, and you could get into how the Reformed position is fundamentally Nestorian in its view. It's problematic. But you just want to hate on the Protestants, I guess. Even though you are protesting organized Catholicism with your monastery out there on the East Coast. You know, maybe it'd be a good idea to find common ground with us. But he continues here. What about John 6.63? Based with the overwhelming evidence in John 6 that the Eucharist is the actual body and blood of Jesus, certain non-Catholics will look for anything to combat it. They will point to John 6.63. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. They claim this indicates that Jesus didn't really mean that people will eat his flesh. This claim does not hold up, however. It is refuted by the following points. So, okay, he says, we know that Jesus is not talking about his flesh in the part of the verse where he says the flesh profits nothing. Consider this question. Is the flesh of Jesus of no profit? What about his incarnation? How could he speak of his own flesh as profiting nothing when he just said over and over, John 6, 51, etc., that his flesh is the life of the world? Uh, again, I concur with you, sir. If it sounds like I'm beating a dead horse, it's because uh, brother Peter DeMond keeps beating that dead horse. He keeps going in the next page. Protestants admit that the blood of the Passover lamb mentioned in Exodus 12, which the Hebrews had to mark their doors with, signifies Jesus as the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. They don't realize that God also commanded the Hebrews to eat the Passover lamb. Yes, I do. I recognize that, and the spiritual priesthood of all believers means that all of us may partake of the sacrifice for us. If you don't do that, are you truly part of the priesthood? So I affirm it. But he keeps saying that this is a Protestant problem. This is a Protestant thing. Protestants don't have a valid biblical hermeneutic, and even when we get something right, we're actually getting it wrong. The New Testament fulfillment is greater than the Old Testament type. If, as the Protestants say, the Eucharist is just ordinary bread, then it would be inferior to the manna in the desert which appeared miraculously. It would be inferior to its Old Testament type. That doesn't make sense. It cannot be the case. The Eucharist must be supernatural and miraculous in some way. Dude, even Zwingli agreed with you, and he was the pioneer of the symbolic view. What are you talking about? And now, while he ignorantly summarizes all Protestant doctrines as being the exact same, some memorial view of the sacrament, at the same exact time, he's ignoring the elephant in the room. This book is called The Bible Proves the Teachings of the Catholic Church by Brother Peter DeMond. Okay, so here's the Bible proving that Christ is there in the sacrament. It's not proving transubstantiation, the particular Roman Catholic doctrine of the mechanics of the sacrament. Why isn't he getting into that? Where is the Bible proving the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church here concerning the Eucharist? 
It's proving that Christ is there. Sure, with his body and blood. I agree. It's not proving transubstantiation. And if this book says the Bible proves the teachings of the Catholic Church, and he's not proving the teachings of the Catholic Church, then I'm going to say that this guy's animosity towards Protestants, as well as organized Catholicism, is making him just as dishonest as it's making him ignorant. Let's keep exploring that dynamic as we go into his next chapter. The Biblical Basis for Praying to Mary and for Catholic Teachings on Mary. Oh boy, this ought to be good. So he goes through some of the basics here. The Blessed Virgin Mary is the mother of Jesus Christ. Yes, according to his human nature, this is true. She is Theotokos. Contrary to the claims of some, the Catholic Church does not teach and has never taught that Mary is God. Oh, really? I don't think he understands how so many papal pronouncements and official doctrines and everything have constructed something of a goddess out of Mary. Consider how millions of people pray to Mary every single day. Is she capable of hearing all of their prayers? Well, Roman Catholics are told, Mary hears your requests. But in order to hear and mentally process and be aware of all of these prayers to her, Mary must be something like omnipresent. And in order to mentally process all of it and to know what all of these prayers coming to her all at once are saying, well, she must be something like omniscient. And to be able to answer all of these prayers or to pass along all of these prayers to our Lord Christ, she must be something like omnipotent. Yes, the Roman Catholic Church treats Mary like something of a lesser deity. She is a goddess according to all the capabilities and the superhuman ways that she acts according to their theology that it's hard to argue that they're not giving her divine status. But back to the book here, Mr. DeMond wants us to know a lot about typology. He gets into the typology of how Jesus Christ is presented as the second Adam, the new Adam. And yes, St. Paul talks about that. Oh, yes. He says, as so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. Yes, our Lord Christ was foreshadowed by the true existence of Adam, the first man. Then he says, as Christ is the new Adam, Mary is the new Eve. You see, there are all these parallels between things happening in the Old Testament and Mary's life. So Eve communicated with, believed, and obeyed a fallen angel, the serpent. But Mary communicated with, believed, and obeyed a good angel, Gabriel. Mr. DeMond cites Genesis 3 and Luke 1 to draw those parallels. Then he says, while well, Eve was the mother of all living, hence Adam naming her Eve, Mary, as mother of Jesus, is the mother of all the living and even of life itself. Oh, okay, so Jesus says he is the life, John 14, 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Sure. And then Mr. DeMond says, Jesus is the life. Mary is therefore literally the mother of life itself. The parallel to Eve, the mother of all the living, is clear. Except that Christ and Mary were not married. This is a mother and son situation, not a husband and wife situation. And it would be blasphemous to claim that it's both. 
You see, the thing about typology is that there are severe limitations to it. You can see a type from the Old Testament, but you should not take it as anything other than a prophetic indication about something, right? So, Jesus being the new Adam, yes, that is true. However, Christ does not fall like Adam does. And even if it's right to say that Mary is the second Eve, she is not married to God. David is a type of Christ. David also committed adultery. Did Jesus commit adultery? No. No, he has never committed adultery. He's sinless. If you take typological analogies too far into a practical aspect of things, you will end up with blasphemy. For instance, I'm sure he's going to bring up the so-called queen mother practice of ancient Judah as a typological kingdom of heaven, and that makes it legitimate to pray to Mary. Except that the kings of Judah also practiced polygamy, so if it's a one-for-one -one thing, you would have to say that Christ has more than one bride, which he doesn't. The bride of Christ is the church. He doesn't have another bride. But if I get to deny the typology of kingly polygamy in the Old Testament, then it's perfectly legitimate to deny the queen-mother dynamic. This book is supposed to be how the Bible proves the teachings of the Catholic Church. This isn't proving it. It's just presenting typology and telling you this is translates into an ought and therefore vindicates it. He says, Eve was created without any sin. The new Eve, Mary, also had to be created without any sin, immaculately conceived. We've seen that the Bible indicates that Mary is the new Eve. So the question is, in what state was the soul of Eve created? Eve was created in Genesis 2, free from all sin. The entire creation was perfect until the fall of mankind. Yeah, but Eve was also taken out of the rib of Adam. Did Mary come from Jesus's rib? Are we going there? <laughs> this guy cannot be serious. He's dishonestly inserting logical conclusions into what the text says and says that is the text saying it. Remember, guys. If your worldview is fundamentally based on hating everybody that is not you, you will be as dishonest as you are ignorant. Hence, in page 11 here, he gives us a definition of the Immaculate Conception from Ineffabilis Deus, from Pope Pius IX. We declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine which holds that the Most Blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instant of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin, is a doctrine revealed by God, and therefore to be believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful. This book is called The Bible Proves the Teachings of the Catholic Church, and you're not proving it, you're just saying it. And you're showing me stuff from the Bible and claiming that if you look at it funny, that that means that the Roman Catholic Church is correct. And even when the Bible says something that contradicts it, like Luke 1, 46 and 47, And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. You see, we Lutherans and most Protestants would go, Wait, if 
Mary was sinless, how could she need a savior? Ah, Mr. DeMond has a reason for that, you see. God saved Mary by preventing her from contracting original sin. Well, that's not saving you, that's just preventing you from needing to be saved. Mary did not say, My spirit hath rejoiced in God, the one who prevented me from the necessity of salvation according to the sinful state of other people in mankind. Because <laughs> I'm so perfect. No, Mary doesn't say that. She calls God her savior, meaning she needed someone to save her. Then Mr. DeMond decides to tell us about how Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant, which I agree with. I've talked about it here on the VLP before. But his way of going about it is to say, ah, see, there's a common word here, and so that, that common word equals typology. For instance, he says, David leapt before the ark, 2 Samuel 6, 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter Michal looked down through the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. Ah, but the infant leapt in the presence of Mary. Luke 1, 41 through 44, and it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. For that, that moment, the sound of your greeting reached my ears, and the infant in my womb leaped for joy. <laughs> See, leaping and leaping, and ark and Mary, and if we just have parallels enough, that means that it's true. Well, that's not a legitimate biblical case. That's like those weirdos out there that claim that Satan and Jesus are the same being because Satan was the angel of light and now he masquerades as an angel of light and then Jesus talks about the light and being in the light and since I see the word light a lot that means that they're the same thing and Satan is a type of Christ according to Old Testament typology. <sighs> no, it's legitimate to call Mary the Ark of the New Covenant. But that doesn't mean you treat her as the Ark of the New Covenant. It just means that's what she is. Besides, all believers are Arks of the New Covenant, because if you take Holy Communion, where the blood of the New Covenant is given to you, Christ, our New Covenant, resides in us, making us Arks. The distinguishing feature of Mary was that she was the first Ark of the New Covenant, carrying the Christ child in her womb. But you see, he wants her to be more special when he says, since Mary is the new ark, she had to be holy and created without sin. God gave the most precise specifications for the construction of the ark. He ordered that it be made with the most pure gold. Exodus 25, 10 through 13, and then verse 24 they shall make an ark of setim wood, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof, and thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. What is he missing? The fact that people made it. People made the ark. Sinful people. And the fact that there was pure gold on it meant that sinful people had to do stuff to construct this ark. It was not created out of perfectly perfect, super perfect materials just the gold. Do you see the hat trick this guy is pulling though? So like, Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant, and that means she's without sin. Is the Bible proving the teachings of the Catholic Church there? No, it's not. What he's just presenting to you is the logical inferences, according to typology, that the Catholic Church says are there. 
And then he monkeys around with translation. See, Exodus 25, verse 11, his translation says, And thou dot 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 shall make upon it a crown of gold round about. <gasps> Apocalypse, or Revelation 12, 1. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Well, Exodus 25, 11 is about a gold molding around the entire thing. Was Mary covered in gold molding upon her, I guess, annunciation into heaven or whatever? That's insane. Ah, but he just keeps going. She did not merely contain the spiritual presence of God, but Jesus Christ, God himself. She did not merely contain the written word of God, but the word of God made flesh, John 1, 1. Consequently, Mary must be perfect. She must be free from all sin. She must be an ever-virgin and untouched by man. So listen to that. This is a logic. Because this isn't Bible he's presenting to you. It's logic. He's trying to say that his philosophy regarding scripture makes it true. So if Mary didn't stay a virgin, if she had sex with Joseph, that suddenly means that she is not perfect anymore. Even if she's married. Ah, sex must be sin then, even in marriage, according to the DeMond brothers who are monks. That's not the case. That is not the case. The reason we see that Mary had to be a virgin is because God said so. It's a miracle and a sign that our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, are defeated by God who sends his only begotten Son. We cannot claim that we provided our Savior through a father to Christ, an earthly human father. No, God himself did that. Ah, but they connect her virginity as something absolutely necessary because otherwise she's not a perfect ark. And you have to have a perfect ark made by perfect hands or else it's not a legitimate covenant. But the Bible doesn't present that standard. God gives standards for an ark, sure. So too did he give standards about the Messiah's line, being from Judah, being from the line of David, etc. And Mary comes from that. But it's not about absolute hyper-perfection in the sense of being completely sinless. But you see, he needs to do this eisegesis, inserting meaning into the text so he can say, Just like the Ark of the Old Covenant, Mary has a unique power of intercession. She has awesome power over God's enemies, over the devil, and in aiding the people of God. And he cites uh, the Dagon statue from 1 Samuel 5 being cast down and the plague that hits the Philistines as proof that the Ark itself had power of intercession for the people of God, which means the Ark of the Covenant, an inanimate object, was somehow aware of like an idol. It is, according to the DeMond brothers, I guess, a magic object that has a brain somewhere and sees stuff and does this of its own accord. And Mary's just like that, I guess. That doesn't make the point that they want it to make. It just tells me that they're idolaters. <laughs> Look at this magic idol we have. It's just like Mary. That's why it has such unique powers and awareness of everything. Okay, pal. 
So your worldview, based on hating everybody that isn't you, and I guess rejoicing in the damnation of others or something, has led you to be deeply ignorant, deeply dishonest. You eisegete all of these texts, and then you claim that it's to prove that Mary is just like the magic box, making you something of an idolater. The magic box. Okay. So, all right, guys. We're going to get more into their Mariology next week, but that's what I'm seeing here. Ignorance, dishonesty, and flat-out idolatry. Some really weird stuff going on. And that is, I believe, a result of this angry rejection of a group that hates them. Because they're Protestants. The DeMond brothers are protesting the Roman Catholic Church. But I really hope they don't get the reformation that they want. Until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.